and it also befits you. Allah This is what has to be said to you. That you should not be sidelined or sidetracked or unduly impressed by certain ecstatic statements and expressions of the Sufis. I'll explain that to you in a moment. Because the true way of following this path of seeking the pleasure of Allah Ta'ala, which is Sufism, which is Tasawwuf, true Saluk, true Tazkiyah, true Tasawwuf, Yakuna bil Mujahada, is not done through ecstatic outbursts and expressions and fancy statements. No, it's done through Mujahada, through striving, through working going against your nafs, making ibadah, having good akhlaq. So this is what he's going to say, وَقَتِ الشَّحْوَةِ nafsi And to sever, to sever entirely the lustful desires of your nafs. وَقَتْلِ هَوَاهَا بِسَيْفِ الْرِيَادَةِ And to kill all of its unlawful passions using the sword of self-discipline and spiritual exertion. لَا بِتَّامَاتِ وَالشَّرَحَاتِ what, 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 what? Turahat. Not with these uh, ecstatic expressions and outbursts and statements. So what happened here that Imam Ghazali was an Imam of Tasawwuf, but he was also the Majadid of Deen and Sharia. So what he was doing, he was trying to make people realize that true Tasawwuf is not about only fancy poetry and fancy statements, wah wah hoo ha shor sharapa. Hmm? It's not about that. True tasawwuf is about disciplining your nafs, molding your character, adopting true worship. So he was counseling the person that, look, yes, he meant about himself, Imam Ghazali, that yes, I and we are on the path of tasawwuf, but don't be distracted, deceived by the false, ecstatic, fake Sufis, the singing, dancing, chanting Sufis. Because it's not about singing, dancing and chanting. It's not about statements and outbursts. The Sawf is about the same thing I just told you in the past few pages. Amal and Hal. Amal and Hal. Hal doesn't mean dance and trance. Hal means Hal of sabr, of taqwa, of haya. Hal of dhikr. That you enter a state that your heart is always remembering Allah SWT. This is what he's trying to say over here. Alright? So it's a very important teaching. And what happens is, is that you have to always sift the right from the wrong. Alright? The true tasawwuf will be about amal and hal. And the false tasawwuf will be about dancing, chanting, singing, reciting. There's a big difference between these two things. Alright? Then he says, Imam Zali says, that know that the, that the tongue that has no restrictions on it, and the heart that is full of rest and full of ghafla and full of shahwa, full of rest and full of ghafla and full of shahwa, all of these things means to have a tongue like that and to have a heart like that is a sign that a person is shaqi. Shaqi means they're doomed. They're, they're going to end up in a false destiny. They're going to end up in misfortune. And if you do not kill your nafs, with true mujahada, exertion and striving in the path to seek the pleasure of Allah And if you don't revive your heart, 
if you don't revive your heart with anwar al-ma'rifah, with the noor of really knowing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you have no hope whatsoever. Then he says that, then he answers him in response specifically to his letter. That okay, now look at some of the questions that you asked me in letter. There are things that I cannot uh, answer them in this short. Uh, there are things that cannot be answered through writing or speaking. So probably he must have asked about certain spiritual conditions and states. So he tells the student that when you yourself reach this condition, you will understand what it means. So as an example, if somebody says, oh, what does it mean to have fanafillah? So we tell the person that, look, you won't be able to understand that. There's no words I can tell you that can describe that. You will only understand what that means when you actually get fanafillah. An example Imam Ghazali uses in another one of his books, when he tries to talk about there are certain feelings that cannot be expressed in writing. So he gives the example of a mango, which all of you will be able to understand. But if somebody asks you, how does a mango taste, and they never tasted one, words can never describe it. You could say it's succulent, it's fleshy, it's sweet, it's sometimes slightly sour. You could go on and on and on. Now that would give them some approximation. But when they actually taste the mango, the experience brings them to a reality that when they reach that reality, they realize the words were a very ba'id, a very distant approximation. So in Tasawwuf, this is called zok, And this is the Arabic word that is used for taste generally also. Zok, and you have this in Urdu also, those of you who Urdu is better. The zok means that you'll have to experience fana, to know what fana is. Without experiencing it, you will not be able to know what it is through a description. So probably he must have asked him some questions about the soul like that. that what is fana? What is istighraq? What is tabattul? These are things, tabattul is in Quran, what does it mean? So Imam Zali told him that look, those are things that you will only understand when you get that spiritual condition and state in yourself. I'll give you a more simple example. What does it mean to the second you say Allahu Akbar? All the way to when you say As-Salaam Only and deeply think about Allah Ta'ala throughout the prayer I can't describe that to you in words You have to try to get that feeling for yourself And the effort and another reason it's important Is because it ends up to a second delusion Which a lot of people today, modern Sufis have They think because they've read the works of Rumi Or because they can recite certain poems of Iqbal They know what the Sawuf is The Sawuf is not in words the soul says, you have that feeling. Those of you don't know the online audience, don't worry. <laughs> this is something I'm saying specifically with the Pakistani context. So that's another problem. People get so caught up in the words that they think that they, because they know the words, they've arrived at the reality. But the reality is arrived at through experience. Alam Iqbal had a heart. You can replicate his tongue. It's not easy to replicate his heart. I would suggest that 90% of the people who do knuckle of his poems on their tongue, they are far, their heart is far from the feelings that are in his heart. Alright? So this is another thing that Imam Ghazari is trying to counsel again, or counsel, uh, warn us about over here. 
Okay, so he gives you this example, just as sweetness, and he gives you some examples. You can read that up because there are also women who are listening. But you, with sweetness, you, let's say there's somebody who lost their sense of taste, so you ask them what sweetness, they ask you, explain to me what is sweetness. You can never explain it to them. Right? Etc., etc. Alright, so there's some things that you can only understand through direct experience. Now, if that's true, we move to page 26 about the pleasures of the world, which is the examples he gave. If worldly pleasures cannot be captured in verbal description, worldly pleasures can only be known through experiencing them, then can you imagine how all the much more true that is of spiritual pleasures? So spiritual pleasures cannot be captured in verbal description. They can only be known through zog and experience. So then he continues to assume, okay, some of your questions are of that sort, that they can't be answered in words. As for the others that can be answered in words, we've already given the answer to them in Iyad al-Mudin and other works, and you should, uh, we will mention excerpts of it to you here, but we refer you back to those longer works for the more detailed answer. Number one, so these are basically now the questions of the Sorof that have come. So these are some things he says about the Sorof. Uh, number one, that there are four matters that are absolutely necessary for a salik. Salik and suluk was the word that the people of the Sawaf used for themselves. Suluk means a journey. And salik means the one who is traveling on that path, journeying towards Allah Ta'ala. Sometimes they can say called the wayfarer on the path, the journeyer on the path. So the salik has to have four things. Number one, Number one, That they must have a true, sound, correct creed and beliefs, and there should be no innovative beliefs that they have. No bid'a in their aqaid, no incorrect beliefs that they have. Wathani, second, Tawbatun nusuhun la yurju'u ba'daha ila zilla. That they should have a true, sincere, complete repentance to Allah Ta'ala and after that they never return to disgraceful action, disgraceful behavior. Third, Bathalism. That they should make the people who are against them happy. This is called Hukukul Nibal. So Khusum here. Uh, literally, khusam and khusum and khasim is used in Arabic for litigants. So litigant litigation means a person who has a haq, unfulfilled haq over you. So the way to translate this would be that anybody who has any unfulfilled hukuk over you, that you fulfill their hukuk and make them so happy and pleased with you, that they waive any and all claims against you. Third thing that a salik must do. So this is the notion of hukukul ibad. Hukukul ibad. Fourth, is that you must acquire ilm. This is why in our tradition of the ulama who practice the sawwaf, they would encourage the salikin to learn the ilm of deen. Not necessary for every salik to become an alim, although some can be able to do that. وَلَعَبْعُوا تَحْسِيلُ عِلْمِ الشَّرِيَّةِ to acquire the knowledge of Sharia to the extent that you need in order to fulfill the commandments of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, you have to know in order to fulfill the commandments of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. 
and then whatever additional and other knowledge is required for your salvation on the Day of Judgment. So write Akidah, Shur Tawbah, fulfill Hukukul Ibad, and Ilm. Write Akidah, Shur Tawbah, fulfill Hukukul Ibad, and Ilm. Alright, so he gave him four things. Four things. Now Imam Ghazali, and now actually it's really from here onward, which is the good stuff that starts. Kekun. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sometimes I think I should just start teaching you from page 26 actually. But, uh, every time I think that, and I never do it. So there was a early Sufi, his name was Shibli Rimulatala. And he had the opportunity to spend time with 400 Mashayah, 400 Shiyukh of the Sawwaf, Allah wa Rabbi. 400. Like somebody says, no, many to Dasasal Separa, Bisasal Separa, 400 Shiyukh. And he says, on top of that, and he studied 4,000. 4,000 hadith of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu And he says, when he says pick, it doesn't mean obviously he followed all of them. It means I focused on one and made sure I did amal on that one hadith entirely so it was then a portal, a gateway for me to do amal on all the other hadith and knowledge that I had. So for amal, I started with this one. I selected one that I will do amal on this because amal on this hadith will bring me to amal on the other hadith. So that's a very important thing for us to know. What hadith was that? And maybe what was a good beginning point for him could become a good beginning entry point for us. So what is that hadith? Apparently he really talks about this a lot. He says, I acted on it, I meditated upon it. Uh, yeah, when he says, I left, I gave up, he doesn't say I gave up the rest. He says, I focused exclusively first on doing amalamas. Alright? Okay, because I found in it the essence of all that I knew and I found my salvation to lie therein. Right? And I found that all of the knowledge of the people who preceded and the people who came later, all of it was encapsulated in this hadith. And what is that hadith? Anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aqal ibadhi ashabi that the Prophet said to some of his companions, itmal li dunyaka that work for your dunya bikadri muqamik based on how long you're going to live in the dunya. And work for your akhirah based on how long you will dwell there forever. Very simple. And do things for the sake of Allah Ta'ala to the extent that how much you need Allah Ta'ala. And do, if you want, do the actions that will earn you the fire of Jahannam, but only do them to the extent, sabrika alayha, to the extent you can endure Jahannam. So actually all of these things are absolutes. You see? Work for Allah to the extent that you need Allah. We absolutely, infinitely need Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Do anything, sin that would lead you to Jahannam based on your ability to endure. We have zero ability to endure Jahannam. Absolutes. Work for the dunya as long as you live in it 100 years. Work for the akhirah as long as you will be there, infinity. Anybody who knows math knows 100 over infinity equals, bolo, 
One, those who know math, 100 over infinity equals 10 million over infinity equals 100 billion over infinity equals even if you were to live 100 billion years, it's still nothing compared to Allah. Oh, look at this, it's so simple. And this also shows you the great people like Imam Shibli, they weren't going for fancy things. Which hadith did he pick? A very simple, straightforward hadith. Very easy to understand. But he said that this hadith, I will make it a ghalib. I will make it dominate me. And really if anybody did amal on this, he's absolutely correct in my view. If anybody truly did amal every second of their life on this hadith, it will bring them to do amal on the entire Qur'an, Sunnah, and Sharia automatically. Automatically. Guaranteed. And this was the incredible nature of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu This was his incredible tirbi of Sahaba. That he couldn't just three, four lines tell Sahaba something. That if they, and they did, and they lived it and practiced it and felt it, it brought them onto the entire day. And this is the great cost we have paid of not knowing the hadith of the Prophet If you don't know it, how can you practice it? If you don't know it, how can you live it? If you don't know it, how can you feel it? If you don't know it, how can it govern you? In Sahaba, they were very wise. They didn't make this mistake. Sahaba made it a point to learn, listen, learn, practice, live, share, preach, practice, live. Allah Akbar So then he says, next page 28, so he tells him, he tells him, the Roma student, if you know, if you know this hadith, but that's it. That's enough for you. Practice. It's enough to answer all the nasiha that you wanted. Practice. Another reason why he's saying this, listen to this very carefully, is it takes two minutes for me to teach you the hadith. It takes a lot of effort to practice this. <laughs> He's saying, it's not like that, okay, I gave you two minutes of knowledge and you're done in two minutes. You're not done in two minutes. It's two minutes to learn it. It's going to take a whole lifetime to live it. He's given enough homework to last your whole life. Sayyidina Rasulullah, Sallallahu gave us homework for our whole life. You understand? It's going to take us a whole life to live this. Then he, said, then he says to him that let me tell you some other things about these people. These true Sufis were the ones who they lived Quran and Hadith. These were the true Sufis were. So he brings up another story. Hatim al-Asam. He was one of the students of the Shaykh. Shaykh al-Balkhir. So one day his Shaykh asked him. And Shaykh al-Balkhir asked him. That look you've been keeping my company for 30 years. Allah Akbar. For 30 years. What have you got out of them? So Hatim al-Asamr, he responded that I got eight useful lessons. I learned eight things in 30 years. And those eight things are enough for me. And I hope that they will deliver me from the Jahannam and be my salvation. So Shaykh got interested. Shaykh got interested. He didn't say, okay, tell me. Tell me one of those eight things you learned from me in 30 years. He said, okay. So he responded, number one. And you will see in everything, except I think one of the eight, seven out of eight, it's all about some verse in Quran, or maybe eight out of eight, let's see. So Hatim Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam responds, number one, 
And what he does here is, I'll just give you a philosophy of these eight things. In each of the eight lessons, he is going to mention an observation of humanity. It's like what we call sociology. It also shows that the true people of Tasawwuf are not out of touch with reality. They're not out of touch with society. They're not out of touch with humanity. They're engaged. They're fully engaged. And, and, and because they're fully engaged, they're fully aware of the condition of humanity and society. And that's required of the ummah. That's required of the alim. That's required of the shaykh to be fully engaged and fully aware of the society and humanity. So he's going to mention some awareness that he observed something. He saw something in people and the condition of humanity. And then he's going to reflect on some verse of Quran. And he's going to make a decision on the way forward. So number one, he says, I observed humanity. And I saw that every person has something that they love. Every person has something beloved to them. And some of those things that are beloved to people keep them company until their final fatal illness. Some of those things keep them company all the way up to their graveside. But ultimately everything goes back and leaves that person alone and solitary. And nothing will enter with that person in their grave. None of those things. So I reflected, فَتَفَكَّرْتُ So I reflected on this. And then I realized what? The best thing that could be beloved to any person would be that which comes all the way and enters into the person's grave and keeps the person company in their grave. And I realized and I found that nothing other than a'mal salih can ever accompany me into the grave. Therefore, I made a'mal salih the most beloved thing to me in my life. I made my mahboob a'mal. Because that's how everybody else's mahboob leaves them at some point in their life, or at most leaves them after they bury them in the cemetery and the mahboob goes back. And I wanted a mahboob that would stay with me in the grave and keep me company in the grave. And I realized the only mahboob that could do that would be Amal Saleh. So I took them as my mahboob and I, took, and I hoped that they would be my nur in my grave and they would be my companion therein. And because of my Amal, I will not be left alone. Second, second he says that I looked and I reflected in the condition of people and I saw that all of them had certain passions and pleasures and desires and wishes and they were all going to fulfill it. This is what the Western secular tradition teaches a person that life is about the pursuit of happiness and pleasure. So he saw that in people, that yeah, that's what people do. Everybody is trying to pursue their happiness and pleasure. Everybody has some desire and wish that they're trying to pursue. So I reflected on a verse in Quran. That whomsoever is afraid of the day they will stand in front of their Rabb. This is a common mistake that the translator made station. Like Urdu many times people think maqam means maqam. Here maqam is in Arabic what we call zarf zaman it means that day that the person will be ka'im, the moment the person will have qiyam, when they will be standing in front of Allah Ta'ala. So he reflected on the verse, Allah said that the person who is afraid of the time when they will stand in front of their Rabb. And because of the fear of that moment, they stop their nafs from its unlawful passions. Such a person will be given Jannah as their permanent residence and abode and dwelling in Akhirah. 
So he says that I was absolutely, I had absolute yakin in Quran that is the truth. It's the absolute truth. So therefore, I worked and strove hard to go against my nafs. <coughs> to go against my nafs in different in mujahada, in restricting it and exerting it in that which is right, and I. Uh, restraining it from its unlawful passions and exerting it in what is right and pleasing and obedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. <laughs> Third, is I saw that every person is always striving to gather and accumulate the material things of this world. Whatever they can get their hands on. So I reflected upon the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Ma'indakum that whatever you have is going to fade away. Whatever, all the material possessions, assets you can acquire and gather will all ultimately fade away. But that which is with Allah Ta'ala Baq means it's Baqi, it will always remain. Eternally, it will subsist. So he says, when I reflected upon that first, so then I decided that I give up on all the extra gains I got from dunya for the sake of acquiring the expression of the pleasure of Allah SWT and I distributed my extra wealth amongst all of the poor and the needy so that the wealth could now be deposited as a deposit for me in the treasures of Allah SWT Fourth lesson and so I mean basically this also is for us to reflect upon that uh, this is something I explained to you, those of you who were there last night. That the more attracted and the more attached a person is to the material possessions of dunya, the less attracted and attached they will be to the ibadat and amal of deen. The more attracted and attached they are to makhluk, the less attracted and attached they'll be to khalik. Fourth lesson is that I saw that some of the creation, they believe that their sharf and their izzat, their honor and their dignity lay in different things. Their different number of different tribes and clans and relatives and progeny and children. Some of them, others thought that their dignity lay in having a lot of money. Others thought that it lay in having uh, in, in the ability to conquer and their ability to conquer and acquire lands and wealth of other people. Even if it meant uh, tyrannizing them and spilling their blood. And there were yet others who felt that their honor uh, lay in their lavish lifestyle. في إطلاف المالي وإسلافه they thought that having this VIP, that's their honor, that I can, I can fly first class and, and, and pour down something and I can fly in a jet and I the lavish lifestyle. They thought this was their status and dignity and honor lay in being able to live a lavish life. This is writing. Imam Zali writing 900 years ago and quoting somebody who was 1200 years ago. What would this Hatim al-Asam think if he saw the VIP first class five-star culture of today? What the hell honor that thing? He would be amazed. But he saw it back then, way back then. 
You'll be amazed, really, when you see the insights of these true people of ilm and tasawwuf, because they understood humanity, they understood Allah Ta'ala, they understood deen, which is what joins humanity to Allah Ta'ala. Many times their advice is timeless. Their observations are timeless. Their advice and observations are as equally valid and potent today as they were in their own time and culture and society. It's only that person who doesn't truly know humanity or doesn't truly know Allah Ta'ala or doesn't truly know deen, how to link humanity to Allah Ta'ala who will ever make the statement that things change according to time, culture and society. Only that person can make that statement. There, so he says, when I saw this, the people thought there is that lay in these lavish things and their different wealth or children or conquering or lands or properties. So he reflected, but Allah Ta'ala is saying Quran. Allah Ta'ala explained clearly, that indeed the most honored of you to Allah Ta'ala are the ones who have the most taqwa. Neither land, nor property, nor education, nor degree, nor children, nor genealogy, or money, or ability. The most taqwa. So he said, okay, then I selected taqwa. I chose taqwa because again I had absolute yakin that the Quran was absolute truth. And I realized that all of the things that other people were thinking was batil, was absolute falsehood, za'il, was something that was going to lead them to pure waste and travesty. Fifth lesson. I saw some people blaming others and slandering others and having envy. And this was sometimes regarding money, regarding fame, or regarding knowledge. Til mali wal jahi wal ilm. So they were upset, why does somebody have more money than them? They were upset, why does somebody have more fame, recognition than them? And third, they'd be upset that why does somebody have more knowledge than them? Same thing is going on right now. Nothing has changed. Over a thousand years have passed, nothing has changed. The problem is the same in the human condition. The solution is the same, deen of Allah. Alright? So what does he say? He says, look, I, I reflected in Quran. Allah says that I and all of my majesty and wisdom and knowledge, I distribute between and amongst them their livelihood and their life in this world. Their livelihood may be their sustenance, might be their money, might be their fame, might be their knowledge. So he says that everything is given from Allah SWT. So when I knew this, that everything comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He says, and then why should I have envy for anyone? Rather, I should be happy with the distribution of Allah ta'ala. So it's a very important lesson. What does it mean? When you have envy for someone, it means you're actually upset. Why did Allah ta'ala give that person something? And that means you're actually angry with Allah. You're questioning Allah ta'ala's dain. You're questioning Allah ta'ala's taqseem. So he's saying, once I realized that I loved all my envy. Sixth lesson. I saw that I saw some people had hostility to one another due to some ghaz and sabab, means due to some reason, some motive, some cause. So I reflected on Quran, but the other saying Quran, in the shaitana, lakum aduwun, that indeed shaitan is the one who is your enemy, but takhiduhu aduwa, you should take him as an enemy. So then I realized that look, I don't, it's not permissible to take anybody as my enemy except for shaitan. So then all enmity, hostility went away from his heart. Seventh lesson is that I saw that everyone is striving with all of their effort and exertion. What? Some of them are striving for provisions in this world, for status, career, provisions in this world. 
So much so that they would be trying so hard sometimes, yaka ufi shubha, sometimes they would fall in matters that were doubtful, haram, and sometimes they would even fall outright into things that are outright prohibited. And then because of that they would end up disgracing themselves, dis- dishonoring themselves, degrading themselves and lowering their work. So they are reflecting on what Allah SWT has said in Quran. وَمَا مِنْ دَابَةٍ فِي الْأَرْضِ إِلَّا عَلَى اللَّهِ الرِّزْقُهَا That there is no creature who walks the face of this earth except that Allah Ta'ala has taken it upon Himself to provide for them. So when Allah Ta'ala is al-Razaq, when I realize that, that Allah Ta'ala has taken the duty of risk upon Himself. So what did I do? I occupied myself with worshipping Him and I severed all of my hopes from Allah. Okay, now this is the question that sometimes people raise. Is it permissible in deen to give up every single thing and rely only on Allah's fountain? So I want you to understand, there are different levels in our deen. One is what is required. One is permissible. One is preferred. Alright? Okay. Number one is definitely not required to do this. In fact, the required thing, standard default, is required to earn a living using whatever ability and capability Allah has given you so that you're not a burden on others. And this is literally like a translation of a hadith of Nabi Kareem Sallallahu However, and it is also preferable to do so. However, in certain cases for certain people, let me put it this way, it is permissible to give up everything for the sake of for anyone. It is permissible, but that's not the preferable way, and that's definitely not required of people. The best example of this is Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, famous incident you would remember, that Sayyidina Rasulullah asked the Sahaba to donate. So Sayyidina Umar, he did what? What most of us might have done, balance. Half I will keep for myself and family, and half I will give to Allah and His Messenger and Deen. So, that notion of balance, hukuk Allah, hukuk right? But what to say in Abu Bakr Siddiq Rantan do? All of you know this authentic narration, right? He gave everything, no balance, no thinking of hukuk And all of you know the entire Islamic tradition says, Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq Rantan was greater in this amal than Sayyidina Umar Rantan was. But this is not prescriptive for everyone. It's not preferred for everyone, and it's definitely not required for everyone. But the fact that Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq did it, and the Apostle didn't reprimand him, means it establishes in truth it's permissible. But not everybody should do what's permissible. So you need guidance in that. I'll give you another example. It would be permissible for me to drive a rickshaw in Lahore, and never teach, and never do anything on deen. It's permissible. There's nothing haram in that. I give up all teaching of deen and I just drive a rickshaw 16 hours a day. It's jais. But obviously, you don't, nobody thinks I should do that. I, don't, I wouldn't do that. Right? So being permissible is something else and being what you should decide is something else. For the vast majority of people, 99% of people, you will not decide to take this permissible course of action that I leave everything and I do tawakkal on Allah SWT. There are 1% of people who will choose this action which is permissible. They are that 1% of people who reach that level of tawakkul 
that Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq had, there are that one percent of people who are approximating that tawakkul that Sayyidina Ibrahim, Nabi Ibrahim had when he left Hajra Now he did it because Allah told him to, right? And mother of Musa she put Musa on the raft tawakkul. She did it because Allah told him to, her told her to, right? So this he chose to be one of those one percent people. Now sometimes a person who is overly ugly asks the question that okay, if he spent the rest of his life worshiping Allah Taala. Where did he eat? So it's nothing surprising. He didn't eat from the sky. He ate because there must have been people like you and me who probably saw him and we probably gave him lunch and dinner. And that's it. Allah Ta'ala would have put it in the heart of someone. Allah Ta'ala works through asbab. When you go to an interview, Allah Ta'ala puts it in the heart of that person to hire you. So that same Allah Ta'ala who put it in the heart of your boss to hire you and pay you a salary, that same Allah Ta'ala can put it in the heart of a person to support this person who dedicated themselves to ibadah. But this is not the norm, this is not the prescription, this is not the practice, but there is a permission for this in Sharia. For most people, taking this permission is not the right course of action. There's a very, very, maybe 1% or 0.1% or 0.01% who do it. And you will find very few people like that who did that. Alright, so one of those few people who we know in the historical record from the billions and billions of Muslims who have come, so actually 1% is incorrect, it's like 0.00001% of Muslims who did this, one of them is Hatim al-Asan. Alright? Okay. Eighth usefulness is, uh, and you will see the seventh and eighth now because I just explained the eighth to you as well, these two things are related. He says that I saw that everybody was relying and depending on creation. And some of them were depending on their money that they have saved for a rainy day. And some of them were depending on their assets and what they owned and their positions. And some of them were depending on their business, their trade, and some anything, any other thing like that. So then what he says, I reflected on the Quran, وَمَنْ يَتَّوَكَّلَ عَلَى اللَّهِ فَهُوَ حَسْبُهُ that whomsoever does tawakkal on Allah Ta'ala, Allah Ta'ala alone is entirely sufficient for them. In amrihi, that indeed Allah Ta'ala will make His will and decision to pass. Indeed Allah Ta'ala has established and apportioned for each and everything a particular amount. So it says, and I did tawakkal. For tawakkal to Allah who has to be when it will then I led a life of pure tawakkal on Allah Ta'ala, and He was sufficient to me. So here that these two points I explained to you together. And it's also possible, by the way, it is also possible that when he says that I left everything and I was only worshipping and I trusted Allah Ta'ala, it may mean, that because we have on the record and so that some people, what they used to do, is they used to worship Allah Ta'ala until their money ran out. And then they would go do something until they had money. And some of their early Sufiya used to be manual laborers. They would go and they would do mazduri and earn enough money to eat and then again they would worship Allah Ta'ala. And then again when their money ran out, and in the scholarly tradition, there were people who used to, were copyists. They would copy Qur'an as an example, Musafi Qur'an. And they would earn money from that. When it was enough, they would just worship and use the money to eat. When the money ran out, they would again copy some Qur'an, again get money. We have a lot of, uh, I mean, of these people, of this 0.0001% who did this, you will also find in the historical record mention that sometimes they did do some earning activity. And the mention that you normally find is these two things, manual labor and copyists. Right? So because of that, it's not really 100% to be taken that they left all earning altogether.
So here, when he told these things to his sheikh, when Hatim al said this to Shaykh Shaykh Balki, so the Shaykh told him that may Allah Ta'ala grant you success. May Allah Ta'ala grant you further tawfiq. May Allah Ta'ala grant you further tawfiq. And he says that I looked, I've looked in the Torah, and the Zabur, and the Injil, and the Quran. Like I told you, these ulama, they would even look at those other things. He said that I have found that entire, in all of the four sacred scriptural revelations, all of them mention these very same eight lessons. And the core of all deen is in these eight lessons that you mentioned. And that person who practices these things, it will be as if they are going to end up on practicing the entire Qur'an and all revelation from Allah SWT. Alright? <coughs> now I'm thinking that if we are here at 4.30... I think it's best if we hand over here. Alright? So, this is the first time in my life I've ever taught this text and not done it completely. It's also the first time I've tried to do it in two hours. Once I did it to the Lama's executive MBA, you'd be stunned. executive MBA Right? But once they told me that we want to give them a touch of humanities, so I said, okay, I'll teach them some Ghazali. They said, fine. So, but that was very fast speed because, you know, they weren't all so interested in these things. So, I mean, so I didn't give them so much explanation. You know, we just kind of read it, basically. Uh, so I think that we, you know, successfully done all, uh, slightly more than half, actually. And we'll keep part two for later. We'll keep you in suspension, Shalatam. And sometimes it is better this way. You need to digest and you need to practice, you need to reflect. If right now I ask one of you to tell me what the eight lessons are, you can't even say it right now. Hmm? So you need to review, you need to ponder, you need to reflect, you need to put into practice. Because we won't be able to benefit from exactly like Imam Ghazali said, it's true for us also. We are not going to be able to benefit from him just by reading his words. We're going to benefit if we put them into practice. If we put his teachings into practice. We're going to benefit if we take all these verses and hadith that were mentioned on these few pages and start putting them into practice. We're going to benefit if we live our life according to these things. And already so much has been put in our plate. So many very potent ayat to Qur'aniyah and ahadith and nabuya and explained through such wonderful examples and inspiration. It's enough. It's enough to last you a lot of time. So I'd rather that we stop here and inshallah ta'ala we try to do amal on this. And we view this as our homework. Because we don't want to just come and say, Oh, I attended Ghazali and I did it for fun or I did it for... No, no. We, all of our learning of deen is for the sake of amal. All of the learning of deen is for sake of hal. And we should make that niyat. And may Allah Ta'ala accept that niyat from us. And may Allah Ta'ala accept Imam of Ghazali's niyat that he also wrote these things so that people would practice them. And that's a very good way to explain to you the barakah of kunu masadikin. That sometimes it's the barakah of the student that the student has ikhlas, that the student wants to practice. And sometimes it's the barakah of the teacher, Imam al-Ghazali, that he wanted people to practice. And he wrote it with this niyat that somebody would do amal on it. And sometimes Allah Ta'ala accepts his niyat. He is makbul. So sometimes his niyat that others do amal on what I write is makbul. So sometimes even maybe some of us knew these hadith before. But when we get it through the teaching of Imam Ghazali, 
And because he wrote it so we would do amal on it, and Allah Ta'ala loved him and gave him kubuliya, sometimes learning from these great masters makes us more inspired and more makbul and get more tafiq from Allah Ta'ala to do amal. So this is for you to test out, right? And now we're going to back to our normal life where we're going to see that are my sins and my ghaflat really so thick that I'm immune to Imam Ghazali? Has the dunya vaccinated me so strongly against deen? Can I really attend a workshop and basically my life is entirely unchanged and I remain the same? This is a question. This is a question to examine. This is something to ponder upon. And we hope that every one of you will do your best to make sure the answer to these questions is no. No, no, no. I don't want to be untouched by deen. I don't want to be unmoved by Quran. I don't want to be unaffected by hadith. I don't want to be uninspired by Sadiqin. And you turn to Allah's fountain. Only Allah Ta'ala can give tawfiq for any amal and any hal. You have to make dua to Allah's fountain. You have to I spent a couple of hours of my life only for your sake and in your name to learn. And now only you, Allah Ta'ala, can give me the guidance and tawfiq from your rahmat and karam and fazl to practice what I learned, to practice what I heard, to practice what I read. So the course may be ending now, the work begins now. The work hasn't ended, the work has begun. May Allah Ta'ala give all of us tawfiq. May Allah Ta'ala reward Imam Muhammad Allah Ta'ala. Every copyist, every transmitter, how many people are between us and him in over 900 years. May Allah Ta'ala reward each and every one for preserving and transmitting his teachings. We have Muslims on and hope that Allah Ta'ala enable all of them to do amal. And we make dua that Allah Ta'ala enable each and every one of us also to make amal. Fa'akhir da'wana ala alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.
every lapse of zikr, every lack of sunnah, every lapse of sunnah, every lack and lapse of taqwa. Ibn Bikri make us firm and steadfast, Ya Allah. Ibn Bikri ask that you accept this gathering, accept all of the people who came. You know, they came with an intention all in only to please you, seeking you, hoping they would hear something that would connect them to you. You know, became honored their intention, be as they hope you to be, be with them as they wish you to be.